animal. Talking animal. Good morning. This is Talking Animals on WMNF. I'm Duncan Strauss, and my guests today are Samantha Wishman and Christina Thomas, co-directors of Free Puppies, a documentary that explores the now common scenario in which rescue dogs are regularly transported from crowded shelters in the south, where the euthanasia rates are high, to the north or other locations where there's demand for dogs, and not coincidentally, the adoption rates are high. That's a familiar narrative told in publications, films, and radio shows like this one. But that's essentially only part A of a bigger, more complex story in the film. In telling Part B, Free Puppies digs deep, probing into why the South is a repository for such a huge, sprawling cluster of homeless dogs in regions often peopled by residents resistant to spay-neuter and where there may not be the resources to operate a county shelter. Not infrequently, this confluence of factors leads to puppies placed in a box with a sign bearing the film's titular phrase. As spotlighted in this movie, it also leads to groups of women rescuers working tirelessly to look after these dogs, extract them from dire circumstances, get them spayed and neutered, find homes for them, or book them on the next transport to do so. We'll discuss these and other elements of Free Puppies, which opens in theaters next Friday, August 12th, with the two women who made the film, Samantha Wishman and Christina Thomas, in a few moments here on Talking Animals on WMNF. A programming note, two weeks from today, on August 17th, I'll be joined by Glenn Hatchell for another edition of Ask the Trainer. And as you know, of course, Ask the Trainer is the show in which we have Glenn on to respond to your questions about dog behavior, training, and more, and sometimes including cat questions. So start thinking about your questions now, and I invite you to meet back here two weeks from today for another session with Glenn Hatchell and Ask the Trainer here on Talking Animals. Meanwhile, later in today's program, I'll talk with Fred Metzler, owner of the Dog Bar in St. Petersburg, which is holding an event this Friday, August 5th, called Barks for Sharks, a party tied to Shark Week, but also aiming to raise awareness of the horrors of the shark fin trade. We'll hear more about Barks for Sharks, shark finning, and more a bit later in today's show. Right now, though, let's discuss the longstanding practice of transporting dogs from the south to the north and elsewhere, moving away from the likelihood of euthanasia and toward the probability of adoption, and crucially, why that phenomenon exists in the south with Samantha and Christina. With a reminder that I invite you to join the conversation by calling 813-239-9663, emailing dj at wmnf.org, or texting 813-433-0885. This is Samantha Wishman and Christina Thomas on Talking Animals on WNF. Good morning, Samantha and Christina. Good morning. Thanks for, join- thanks, thanks for joining us on Talking Animals. Thank you. So congratulations on the film. I imagine you guys are super excited for the official opening on the 12th. We are so excited. Yes, it's been a long journey. No doubt. Well, we're going to discuss that journey and other aspects uh, shortly. But before we discuss the film, let's spend a few minutes discussing the filmmakers. So um, maybe I could ask each of you to just provide a brief overview of how you started making films. Let's start with you, Sam. Yeah, I um, so I actually, this is my first, documentary first feature-length film 
I made a short film before that um, that Christina was actually a star of um, that went on to play at a number of film festivals. And um, that was a great experience and kind of gave me the confidence to think about doing something longer. But before that, I was actually uh, a lawyer and um, briefly worked at a law firm before doing a bit of a, a career shift. And uh, yet another lawyer who uh, sounds like happy to be a former lawyer. Uh, I, I'm hoping that, yes, that will be the case, especially in a week when this is uh, out in the world. Oh, I see. Let's not get ahead of ourselves. But if all <laughs> yeah. if all goes well, I may be a former lawyer, I guess is what exactly. you're saying. I got you. And, and just a little quick follow-up. What was the film, the short film that you uh, referenced that, that Christina was at the center of? Uh, it was called The Pitch. Um, it was about pitching a women's softball comedy in Hollywood. So my friend and I had written a script that was feature length about an all girls school and um, kind of did a buddy comedy around women's softball. And um, we were young and had had some funny responses to that as a Hollywood film idea. Um, and we made a short film about pitching it. Um, and Christina actually played me and I played a kind of assistant uh at a television studio being, um, I think, a little uh, dubious of, I see. of the two women. Yeah. So for a short film, it sounds kind of meta in some ways about a film about pitching a film and uh, Christina's in it and you're playing somebody else. And uh, yeah. sounds sounds cool. I got to check that out. So, Christina, what about you? What's your background apart from obviously starring in, in that film? Yes. Um, so in college, I got to work on my first film, Night Catches Us, as a, an office production intern. And from there, I've worked on a few movie sets, just slowly working my way up. And I've also worked on a, a bunch of commercials. And Sam brought me on to work on Free Puppies. And here we are, about to release it, and we are so excited. And if you guys had taken been friends for at least some years, so that, Christina, you would end up in Sam's film, and then... Sam would ask you to work on this film. So have you guys known each other for quite some time? Yes. We we met in college. Okay. Um, I think maybe freshman year. Mm -hmm. So uh, we won't age ourselves, but it's been some time. <laughs> okay. Well, that sounds sounds like a longstanding friendship that's uh, that's working creatively as well. Yeah. Yes. It's been a really great partnership. And I think uh, we've both had lots of uh, working experiences at this point. So we are very grateful that we seem to complement each other and have fun doing it. Absolutely. And so I guess that naturally almost brings me to this question, because directing is typically thought of as a one-person job. I mean, obviously there's a number of exceptions, but and you guys are one of them. So just curious, Sam, it sounds like you invited Christina to come on board and work on the film, but, but as part of that, obviously, she is the co-director. So why did you guys opt to co-direct this film? And, and maybe more specifically, what was the division of labor once you made that decision? Well... I mean, this was such a um, a bit of a shoestring operation, and um, we had a very small crew. So even directing, I would say we were kind of doing directing, producing, and a million other things. So I would say we are co-filmmakers in that sense of, um, you know, production. Uh, we went down to Georgia probably five times over the course of two years of filming. Mm -hmm. um, and I had a 
sense going into the project at the beginning of like a bit of a story arc, but we were really following the rescuers and learning from, from them. And Tina and I split the interviews and we would actually switch off interviews, which I think was actually really helpful because I think people respond differently um, to us. So I think that actually added to the um, kind of responses we were getting. Okay. And when it came to editing, uh, we were really lucky and worked with um, Matthew Meyer, who helped us with the story um, and taught us so much about editing. And then Tina and I both know Premiere and did a lot of the work ourselves, and that was incredibly collaborative. So. And that's Muffy Meyer, I believe? Yeah. Yes. Okay. Because uh, just as sort of a wise guy, just looking at credits and stuff, that name kind of jumped out at me. It's like, that, that is a great name, no matter it's what. It's a great name. Yeah. So. So what came first then, the idea to collaborate and sort of co-direct or the idea for Free Puppies itself? Uh, Free Puppies ex- itself was the initial driver. I, um, it, it started really from a personal experience with adopting. Um, my family had, I had one rescue dog. My mom was looking to, um, at the time she was looking at, at breeders to get a dog, a second dog, um, and I strongly urged her to rescue, and she was a little, um, had never done it before and was nervous, so I offered to help her. And we ended up finding this dog, Stuart, who was through Pet Finder, which is an online adoption um, networking site. And he was in Mississippi, and my mom was living in Connecticut. Um, and we applied, got accepted, and then he came up on this transport truck. Um, and that was the first time I'd really seen a transport truck. There were 80 other dogs. Um, the woman who was driving was very nice, and I asked her a bunch of questions. And that's when I learned that she made that trip almost every week and that there were um, more of her making the same trip and got us a sense of the scale. And from there, started to become interested and curious and also realizing that the more people I talked to around New York and Connecticut, the more I realized a lot of people had adopted dogs through this process, but very few people knew really what was going on that had led to it. So that kind of was what made me think that this would be a worthwhile documentary and, um, at that point I talked to Muffy, uh, who introduced me to Monda. And then Tina came on board, and we went down to Georgia. Oh, that's really great, because as I noted in the opening of the show, dogs being transported, as the way you just described from the South, is is kind of a longstanding narrative, and, you know, one usually touted, in a way, in publications, films, and certainly we've done things about it on, on this show uh, from various standpoints. But interesting in terms of what you guys have done here, that's often presented as the solution to a problem, to sort of oversimplify, it's just finding homes for dogs by transporting them north. But you hear precious little, if anything, about what's underlying the factors in the south that yield all these dogs. So that's where it seems like free puppies really kind of takes a, a different direction and a, and a much, as this phrase goes, a deeper dive into like what's behind that. Because I think, again, the people that sort of tout like, hey, yeah, this transport is great. They're bringing up these things. They're find- all these nice dogs are finding homes, which is great. There's no, uh, no one's disputing that. But yeah, I think it's rare for people to sort of look like, okay, but what's right behind that? What's the stage prior to that? And what does that look like? And what, is that, what are all the factors there? Which is, you know, obviously chiefly what your film does. So. Yeah, absolutely. We were really, um, I mean, we, I think transport has saved a ton of lives and I think the work and effort, I think it's all great. And we don't mean to at all suggest it's not, but just that there, 
like you said, there is more to the story that we think it's important for people to understand um, and to feel responsible for the whole picture and what comes before that would be our hope. And so was it really just that experience kind of with your mom and, and talking to the transport driver and, and then learning that there's other people that are doing that um, that got you interested or even aware of the, the sort of darker side of the story? Because even if you're just talking to somebody bringing up a load of, of dogs, you still at that point, it still seems kind of squarely in the positive in a way because like, hey, all these dogs in this truck are either already spoken for or we're pretty sure they're, they're, they'll be quickly adopted um, so what, what was the specific moment or, or, or circumstance where you, where you thought, wait, 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 what's, well, there's, there is more to this story and some of it's not as upbeat and positive as the other part of the story. Well, Debbie was the name of the woman who drove the truck with Bless Our Hearts, uh, Animal Rescue. Mm-hmm. And she, she gave me a sense that the scale was really beyond what, I was blown away by the, just that single truck. I thought that was, you know. 80 dogs on a truck is quite a thing to see. For sure. Um, And she gave me a sense that this was really quite significant and had been going on for more than a decade, really, at this scale. Um, And then I started researching, um, and obviously, and and I mean, I think dog euthanasia is a sad, present, uh, like, thing that I've been aware of for a long time, so I wasn't surprised when I started to read more, but to fully understand the complexity of the dynamics and to see it firsthand is a different thing. So I would say it was really talking to Monda, um, and she was the first rescuer we spoke to, and she's kind of the star rescuer of our film because she has been through different phases of rescue and kind of can speak uh, about it from a number of perspectives. And she, I remember, said, are you sure you want to come down and see this? It's like swimming in an endless sea of misery. Um, she said that's the phrase that I always tell people about rescue, and... That was, I remember I was in my car at the time and I remember being like, okay, endless sea of misery. Um, I like, I don't know how you can prepare for that, but it, it definitely gave a sense that there was um, a, a darker story behind all of it. Right. So even before you got down there with a phrase like that, kind of a president, it's hard to think anything yeah. other than I got to brace myself because this is, sounds like it's going to be rough. Yeah, no, it was definitely, um, I think she prepared us. Um, as much as you can be prepared. But the first time you go to um, a shelter where, you know, there were um, a lot of the, there were volunteers who would post, and they they do, you can go look at it now. Um, But I hadn't seen it before kind of so starkly where, you you know, you'll see dogs and it's like, this dog needs to be saved by the date or like this is what's going to happen. Yeah. And you could, and a lot of women do, or the rescuers that we do um, spend your life really just down to the wire trying to save dogs as quickly as you can and um every minute counts and every dog counts so yeah this is Talking Animals on WNF on Duncan Strauss. If you just tuned in, my guests are Samantha Wishman and Christina Thomas, co-directors of Free Puppies, a documentary that examines the long-standing practice of transporting rescue dogs from the south where euthanasia rates are high to the north or elsewhere where adoption rates are high. But the film probes into why the South is a repository of so many homeless dogs. Free Puppies opens in theaters uh, next Friday, August 12th. If you'd like to ask Samantha or Christina a question or offer a comment, please call 
888-313-9663. Email dj at wmnf.org or text 813-433-0885. So, although as we've noted, the, the practice of transporting rescue dogs north has existed for many, many years, it would appear that the aftermath of Hurricane Katrina is kind of viewed as, as, as a pivotal launching point for sort of the more gigantic and sweeping phenomenon. Is that is that about right, or can you discuss that perspective and how widely that view is shared? Um, I think that view is pretty widely shared in terms of the scale. So for definitely it was happening before Katrina. Um, North Shore Animal League in New York um, was transporting, and then going back to the 80s, um, my husband's grandfather actually had a pit bull rescue in upstate New York, and he was transporting dogs himself uh, throughout the 90s. Um, I think what Katrina did was really just turbocharged the uh, amount of resources dedicated to it and the infrastructure that was set up. Um, the connection between rescues, um, I think it was such a massive event, 250,000 dogs at least that were moved. Um, so the amount of coordination that it takes to move that number of dogs, um, I think just set up the uh, infrastructure and capacity for it to continue at scale. And the, the demand um, was there after Katrina, so it continued to um, to become and, and grow as a, as a way of saving dogs. Yeah. And so as you researched and otherwise kind of delved into this, what struck you most, I mean, about why the South, or at least certain parts of the South, is is contending with this and, and has been for many, many years, meaning, like, I guess I should hasten to add, you know, Atlanta, for example, as you point out in the film, isn't really plagued by these difficulties, but so many other areas that, that are, some of which, of course, are the focus of the film, are absolutely plagued by these areas. So it's not just merely, it's a little too glib to say it's the South, but it's certain parts of the South, I guess, or certain other elements that are key yeah. factors. and I think it's, um, you know, it's hard to... I think identify causation and pull apart different factors because there are so many, but I mean, climate is one. Um, it's clearly not the only one because there are places like Atlanta that do have it under control, but they worked hard to get there and they have a ton of resources and it's well coordinated. And I think in general cities have an easier time managing populations um, of dogs because the concentration of resources is there. Um, it's much more efficient the rural areas that we were in are, are vast and um, the human population is quite low, like relatively, the, the, just the human density, um, which I just think gives additional challenges for animal control, animal welfare. Um, they have a harder time um, m managing the dog population. Also in rural areas, it's just more common to have dogs roam, not have fenced in yards, um, not have necessarily spay and neutering a lot of those places don't have accessible affordable spay and neuter around them anyway because it's uh, so vast and resources you know are not uh, are not accessible on a lot of them in these areas so i think the combination of all those factors um leads to the the, the higher numbers that they're seeing of intake in the shelters in the rural south yeah well also i think the some of the i mean the climate as you noted is certainly uh, important but the problems and attitudes the the film at least seems to point to partly really exists on a deep like cultural level, right? So I mean, the, the, which also as a as a film on spool, I thought, what are the prospects of true change being realized given what the these actual factors as as they're revealed are? 
if the prevailing attitude is, hey, we don't believe in, in that spay-neuter stuff or something like that, I mean, how do you really reprogram a culture to look at that differently? I think a lot of them are going through that process, and I think it's, um, you know, maybe not as, not as fast as yeah, we, we might wish it to be, but it is definitely happening, and I think it's happening through a lot of, you know, local leaders who are really taking on their responsibility to, you know, set up their own low-cost spay-neuter clinic in their area um, to support the shelters, to network with rescues and other low-cost spay-neuter clinics. And I think that network is is very strong and there's a lot of support. Um, we heard that from a number of people. Dr. Robin O'Kane is one of the, the vets who's down there and she's not from the area and she said she was overwhelmed by the community that was there and so appreciative and so excited um, and working really hard to get animals to her. Um, they're all booked. I, I think I'm, there is definitely, you know, a group of people who may not be interested or not have, I would say, a small outliers perhaps have like a strong stance against it. But for the most part, it's just not common practice or something that they are used to doing or think about. So it's really more about uh, education and access. And I think yeah. there are a lot of people working really hard on that. And I think that is something that they've seen a lot of improvement Um and it's affecting the culture of the community, for sure. Yeah, it does seem like the educational efforts are there, but it seems like it's also swimming upstream in, in that, that sea of misery that you referred to earlier, just because it just seems like the scope of this is so sprawling. And the number of dogs, a lot of people just aren't really bothering with spay and neuter. So there's just puppies and puppies and more puppies and more dogs. So the people that have devoted themselves to this, like Monda and others, it just seems like relentless and like no real reprieve, at least as captured in your film. Well, hmm. I guess there might not be reprieve. I mean, the reprieve is, um, they, they do identify and feel that they have been making progress. So I guess that's some... Um, bit of reprieve. They, they, they think it's slow, they think it's hard, but they would all say that they feel like they've seen a difference in the time that they've been working and that particularly they feel like spay-neuter has had an impact and that the number of puppies and litters that they're seeing has gone down the time that they've been working. Um, and some shelters support that with numbers, but a lot of it is also what people experience and see and what they've told us. Um, but they, they all feel like they have seen progress, which I think is, you know, I, I think that that gives some cause for, for hope that they'll continue in that direction. And our hope also with the film is that with increased resources and attention on what they're doing, because I think they're doing a lot of the right things and actions and, uh, you know, they're, they've done so much that it could be accelerated with um, more resource sharing, more uh, support that they, that they need because they are doing an amazing job um, in so many ways. For sure. Well, Monda and some of the other women that you spotlight are, like, working tirelessly and seem totally heroic. I guess that's kind of what I was referring to. It just seems like the days, at least the ones they're devoting to, plus apart from their actual ways that they're trying to make a living or run a, a flooring shop or whatever it might be, it just seems like they're just long and just going from one situation that needs help or addressing or uh, dogs need to be moved, removed from somewhere to the next. So that's great that they see that there's progress being made because I think otherwise uh, one of the things I was concerned about just in watching these amazing women work is what is the burnout factor 
for them. And it seems like that would be a huge problem if one or more of them said, you know what, I might come back to this, but I just got to, I got to stop for it for now. Absolutely. They all have full-time jobs. Uh, Ruth, one of the women we follow who um, founded Trooper's Treasures is a school teacher. Monda, of course, has her flooring store and they just are extremely passionate about continuing to rescue. And as you can see in the film, Monda has kind of taken a step back but continues to rescue because uh, it's something that is important to her and her community. So she will continue to save a dog, even if it's uh, adding a little more, more stress to her day or her employees, as she says in the film. Yeah. No, she's clearly like, she might ease up a little bit and she might say, well, I got to devote more to the flooring store or whatever. Right. But she's, she ain't going anywhere. She's not. Yeah. <laughs> no, except for to New York and then to Los Angeles for the opening. She's very excited and she's going to be able to join us, which we're very excited about. Oh, that's great because she'll clearly be a, an impressive, not only advocate, but a real like, articulate spokesperson for like what this situation is and, and what, what can be done. Because one of the things, too, that, that maybe this is a time to talk about that is that when I talk about just some of the things that they is portrayed in your film, that the Mondas and others and just the dogs, uh, uh, just more broadly, seem to be up against is just the thing that you spotlight at one point where there's a, an area that's lacked an animal shelter for years and simply can't pull together the resources to open one. And just the difference that that would make, you know, seems fairly demonstrable, yet they just can't get budgeting or other situations that would allow them to push forward. So that's another factor that I thought, like, some of these amazing women might just start to feel like, well, what's it going to take? Because we still don't have the shelter here where we've been trying for X amount of years. Do you get a sense of that kind of attitude in a, in a specific situation like that where I think a, a sizable difference to have a shelter and yet they just can't seem to, to get it pulled together, just marshal the resources to pull it together? Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. Monda is commissioner fighting for that shelter. And as you see, I don't want to give away too much of the film, but um, she gets... Uh, some talk back to her about some other things in the community that are a little more important to this commission group uh, versus the dog shelter. But um, if anything, I think maybe it pushes these women more. They want that dog shelter, and we hope that this film will raise awareness and um, one day there will be a dog shelter there. And they also are getting, um, you know, they're all incredibly resourceful and something we've seen, which is, you know, I guess ends up being a little bit of a political question of where you think the support should come from. But um, a lot of businesses and private partnerships with public shelters have been, um, you know, useful in helping get more resources um, to places that maybe don't have the public funds to support animal welfare. Um, but that obviously becomes complicated. But like Mondo, for example, you know, made a decision to focus on spay and neuter, which is something that you can do without getting going through the, you know, the commission process and through they they for years were getting people to, to vote to put the shelter on um on the the special purpose local option sales taxes floss is what they call it. Um and you know they they did put so much work into that, so much effort, years and years, and for that not to have come to anything, they started to really turn to um, what they could do on their own. Um, so I think it was discouraging in some ways, but it also didn't stop them from pursuing other avenues. Um, but hopefully 
everyone will, will share responsibility to the extent that they're able would be ideal because there is a public function for sure um, that is very necessary in terms of communities having public animal control. So I mean, one of the questions I kind of had is the decision you arrived at to have free puppies play in theaters. I mean, you mentioned earlier that it was kind of a shoestring effort and everybody kind of was wearing multiple hats, which is not uncommon in those kind of films. But these days, it's also not uncommon for a film like that to stream somewhere or a show somewhere else. And it, and sometimes it's tricky or, or extra challenging if it's playing in theater. So, so tell me a little bit about that decision and what you think likely will happen next as of next uh, Friday the 12th. Um, I think it was really important for us to be in theaters to invite different rescue groups after the films. We're going to have conversations, both with Sam and myself and uh, the Tri-State Film Ladies, uh, or sorry, the Tri-State Rescue Ladies, and um, kind of just talk more about what's going on, how we can help, and eventually we hope that it will go on to stream so uh, people can view it at home as well. But right now we'll be playing in 13 different cities, and... It's exciting for us to kind of just help raise awareness of what's going on and include different rescue organizations in any city that we can to help uh, raise awareness. Yeah. And, and what are some of those 13 cities? So we're opening on uh, August 12th in New York. Um, we're going to be in New Orleans at Zeitgeist. Um, we're going to be in uh, Boulder on the 18th. We are opening... Um, Sedona in Arizona, mm-hmm. um, L.A. is on the 18th. Um, we'll be in uh, North Carolina, the Cary Theater in Cary, North Carolina, um, Tacoma, Washington on the 23rd. Um, we're playing in really some great independent theaters um, and really excited about bringing people out to see it in person because it is a community issue, um, yeah. and I think it is something that we need a community response to. And we're really excited that hopefully we'll be able to provoke some conversations about um, how these communities from across the country can work together because I think that's something that we find really inspiring about this whole um, transport phenomenon is that it it really takes people on both ends for this to work. And it's brought together a lot of people with a passion for saving dogs. And I think if we can really refine that to save dogs and also... Um, you know, help communities better be able to handle their animal populations. That would be um, really exciting for us to see. And on some of those uh, screenings that you mentioned and others beyond, will the idea be at each of those to have one or more rescue groups present and then have a post-screening discussion? We are definitely trying for that. So it's happening for sure in New York, L.A., and San Francisco. Um, We are hoping to do that in other places, but it's very difficult. These are small theaters and we are a small production team and our distribution company is um, First Run Features and they're amazing and have gotten us all these amazing bookings. Um, but we are um, also trying to, to I mean, to, we, are, we were very encouraged and very excited by the response from theaters um, to be booked in so many cities, but it's also a lot for us. So we are doing the best we can, but ideally, yes, we would be doing that um everywhere but for sure right now it's definitely happening in three cities we'll be having live conversations with rescuers the sessions uh, post uh, screening sessions and just the the general sort of game plan makes me wonder what kind of response have you had from some of the bigger national animal organizations i mean best friends obviously comes to mind in terms of kind of some of their key goals 
and how those would dovetail with a lot of what you're exploring in this film. Has there been any uh, connection made or any response from them thus far? We have not. Uh, Best Times has not seen it. Um, ASCCA was early, um, you know, involved in this film. Karen Walsh was a, one of our interviewees, and she was absolutely wonderful and very informative um, and had a great sense of the history and the development of transport and also that kind of national perspective, which was very valuable mm-hmm. um, to give to the film. Um, but in terms of national uh, organizations, we are... We've been reaching out to people, but we are we are a small film, and um, hopefully we can just keep, um, you know, getting uh, attention where we can and build on that and get more and more people to to uh, see it and hear what these women have to say. Um, so we are we are at the beginning of our, our road, but very excited to see where it, it goes. Yeah, well, I do expect, based on the film and, and the issues covered in it, that it's probably going to gain momentum quickly and attention quickly. But it just seems to me that uh, some of those national organizations, as they become aware of it, as, as some of their hopefully key leadership folks see it, they might say, hey, maybe we can put some resources of one kind or another, not, not strictly money, but maybe obviously hopefully that too, but just some of their other resources and expertise that they developed over decades of doing the work that they do might be uh, directed towards the issues and, and the areas that you're spotlighting in the film. Yes, absolutely. Sometimes I wonder when I see a documentary, like how the filmmakers got access to certain things or permission to film. For example, the two brothers in the film, was there ever any reluctance on their part or was that was there ever any sort of conversation or even negotiation that, that went down to be able to include some of the scenes that you have with them? Um, so Ruth has worked with the brothers before, um, mm-hmm. helping getting their dogs spayed and neutered. So she's the one that introduced us to them. And uh, as you can see in one scene, um, they weren't too excited to have us there. But at the end of the day, they love their dogs so much, and they know that Ruth is helping them and helping either getting the dogs spay or neutered or if it's a dog that they can't take care of because they do have a, a fair amount finding it a, a new home. Um, but at the end of the day, we were singing with them. Um, we were having a great time, and I think uh, they enjoyed being filmed. Yeah. Okay. It's... It, it, um, we in the film it's three scenes, but we really went there at least five times um, and stayed for for hours. Um, so we have we could have done a whole film on them. They have lots of stories, and they were they were happy to tell them to us. Um, they're both very kind and very um, they love dogs, and they they were excited to share. So. Um, yeah, they're certainly colorful and distinctive uh, characters, and and yet uh, one of the things that was really great is fundamentally you could tell they they did love the dogs, even if there was a lot of dogs there, and they were kind of obviously in a remote area, and so there was probably some challenges that went with that. But yeah, but, but, but and see- a lot of those dogs, they were um, you know they're in some ways rescuers themselves because they lived near uh, a dump where people were dumping dogs, and they would you know, spend what money they had on dog food. And so dogs would kind of come to them. So they ended up with, um, you know, dogs that were, were owned, but also they were really feeding stray dogs in the area um, just because they, they loved them and thought that was the right thing to do. So in their own way, they were also rescuers themselves. Yeah. 
But boy, that some of the puppies that they had were like they'd come out with like what looked like basically newborns or thereabouts uh, that that ended Please, up. Please, yeah. yeah, yeah, fleas for sure. Um, yeah, and I mean, you know, uh, dog rescue is a complicated and hard, um, hard world, hard subject, and the decisions that people have to make, I think, are are very difficult because you're dealing with um, all sorts of people with all sorts of lives and experiences, and um, people that love their dogs but maybe aren't in a position to be able to give them uh, everything they need in terms of being healthy puppies. So it, it presents really complicated questions of how to handle that. For sure. This is Talking Animals on WNF. I'm Duncan Strauss. My guests are Samantha Wishman and Christina Thomas, co-directors of Free Puppies, a documentary that examines the long-standing transportation of rescue dogs from the South for adoptive homes, but probing really more deeply into why there's such an ongoing surplus of available dogs who otherwise, in many cases, would likely face euthanasia. The film opens in theaters next Friday, August 12th. So in our remaining moments, we invite you, if you'd like to join the conversation, by calling 813-239-9663, emailing dj at wnf.org, or texting 813-433-0885. So, and another thing in terms of uh, filming or access, this was probably not necessarily challenging, but just kind of interesting in terms of the insights that it provided. But when you have, uh, you're showing some of the commissioners' meetings, and you kind of touched on this earlier, but... You really get a sense of, I mean, Monda is a commissioner, but she's almost kind of being teased by some of her fellow commissioners about wanting things or shelters or resources or whatever for the dogs. And it's like, hey, do you know we have to do this, this, and this before we could possibly get to what's on your list, Monda? Well, yes. And Monda um, is a big personality. She's yeah. Oh, she could certainly handle herself. There was no no question <laughs> yeah. about that. And, no, I, um, but also, like she is she is friendly and friends with all, all these people as well. Yeah. Um, so, you know, she lives in Trenton, which is the the seat of Dade County, and that has a population of two thousand. Um, so she knows, you know, almost everyone there. Yeah. Everyone knows her certainly. Um, so they the dynamic there um, is you maybe don't get the full picture, but. There's there's also kind of long-standing relationships. Oh, yeah. No, it seems affectionate. Yeah. Uh, I guess more my point was just that uh, with whatever the teasing and stuff, uh, at the core of that was that what Monda and people like Monda are up against in terms of, like, trying to get funding or trying to get some help for something that would in turn help yeah. the dogs, you know? Well, and it's almost, in some ways, harder because I, I don't think that they don't want to do it. It's just they don't have enough resources to right. do the things. Um, and as Vonda will say, you have you can fix a road that people drive down every day or you can put money aside for the animal shelter and that she fully understands that the answer to that um It's the roads. Yeah. Is the roads. And yeah. I, I think that, that is more just a question of of yeah, resources, um, honestly, which I I think um is you know i guess the good news is it's not lack of will on most people's part which right. you know resources can be are also hard to come by but it is something i think people can help with yeah all right well let's we're in our final moment or two let's take a quick call to get somebody else involved in the conversation if we can hi you're on talking animals with samantha wishman and christina thomas hello hi you're on talking animals with samantha wishman and christina thomas hello hello do you have a question or comment for samantha and christina Yes, incredibly excited about the film. Uh, just wondering um, for them personally what the what the most difficult aspect of, of filming the project was. 
Okay, thanks for your call. That's a great question. Um, I think one of the most difficult things was, of course, seeing all of the hard work that these women put in and not having a definite answer of, like, when this will end. And uh, But in that also, seeing their positivity, that kind of turned it around uh, for me. I don't know if it was more about, like, a technical question about the film. <laughs> no, I, at least I gathered that, and the color's gone out, but uh, the, probably I think he was asking more about the emotional yeah. you know, challenges uh, was maybe the most uh, difficult in that so regard. Definitely. Uh, one of our first trips there, we got to be a part of a transport and kind of see a shelter early morning and... Um, you just, you see a lot of dogs and I and Sam, we love dogs. We both tried to adopt many dogs throughout this. Yeah. That was a question I was having. It was like how many dogs that you guys might've adopted along the way. But, uh, uh, I think pretty much not every single time, but there were several times where I, uh, fell in love with a dog and, um, uh, we did end up adopting uh, a dog out from, one of the shelters and transported up to Philadelphia, Jojo. And um, she now is living it up in, in Seattle and um, Houston, of course, in the film. But I think that was a difficult part for me. Um, I am a, an emotional person, so I kind of had to take a step back and remember yeah. I'm trying to tell this story and <laughs> not just cry. Um, but there was so much positivity, too. These women work so hard and they don't give up and there's something so inspirational about that that makes you want to work with them and uh yeah it's truly truly inspiring in in the most powerful sense of that word for sure so i guess we have unfortunately come to the end of our time but we've been speaking with samantha wishman and christina thomas co-directors of free puppies which opens uh, next friday august 12th and the website is freepuppies.us is that do i have that right yes Okay, and so people can find out about where it's screening and where they can eventually catch it if it's not immediately in their area currently and other information about the film. So, Samantha and Christina, thank you so much for uh, joining us on Talking Animals. Good luck with your film, and I hope it really helps carry a a much broader message that helps address some of those problems that you spotlight so deftly in your film. Thank you so much, Duncan. We really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you so much. It means so much to us to have this opportunity to speak with you, so thank you. Thank you. Good luck. See you. Thank you. In a moment, I'll speak with Fred Metzler, who owns the Dog Bar in St. Petersburg, where this Friday they'll be throwing a bash called Barks for Sharks, where dogs and humans can celebrate Shark Week and maybe learn something about a particular plight of sharks owing to shark finning, a truly awful and cruel practice. More on all that in a moment. Right now, we're going to step into the comedy corner with a longtime Talking Animals fave. This is Brian Regan with a piece called Animals in today's comedy corner on Talking Animals on WMNF. I lived in New York City for a while before I came out here. My apartment was really small in New York. I had a goldfish, and I had to keep him in a shot glass. No, it's okay. A little pebble in there for scenery, so. He liked that. He was like, yeah. This is just like the ocean. I like to watch when he try to turn around there. Filtering system, I take a straw. It's like a jacuzzi room. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I think people are unfair to their pets, you know? Like putting a pet bird in a cage. That's pretty nice, huh? Get in there, clank, shut up. I'll be making the decisions. I was wondering what a bird's thinking standing in a cage. Hey, thank you. Hey, I've been blessed with the gift of flight. Appreciate the environment. 
I know how to fly, I'm standing on a stack. Hey, I've already read these newspapers. In fact, I've whited out some typos. I don't know what animals think, you know? You ever knock over an ant pile? Isn't it amazing that they all start rebuilding it that second? They're just, no, 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 They're all running around. You'd think there, you know, there'd be just a minute, you know, where they'd all get upset. <laughs> and you just knock it over. Oh, man! I don't believe it! Look at this! Even if most of them started working, there'd be a few hanging off to the side going, I ain't doing that again. <laughs> Standing right there, just gonna knock it over again. All right, that was Brian Regan in today's comedy corner of a piece called Animals, taken from his album simply entitled Live. Now it's time to speak with Fred Messler, owner of the Dog Bar in St. Pete, where they're presenting Barks for Sharks this Friday, August 5th. There are a number of shark-oriented elements offered at this celebratory night. Mostly fun, but some awareness raising, too. Let's hear about that from Fred Metzler on Talking Animals on WF. Good morning, Fred. Good morning. How are you? Great. Thanks for joining us again on Talking Animals. So we spoke on the show about three years ago, but for those who didn't hear that interview or for some reason somehow aren't familiar yet with the dog bar, maybe you could give us a brief overview of what the dog bar is. Well, essentially, we're a, um, we're a private dog park with a full bar included. So membership club for the dogs. Everyone's got to be up to date on shots, fixed if they're more than a year old and non-aggressive. Uh, so all the dogs are vetted and members. And essentially, we've got about 5,000 square feet of off-leash area where the dogs run around while folks enjoy a cocktail. Seems to be working out pretty well. No doubt. Sounds like a great combination, right? If you, if you, like, if you like dogs, dogs and, and like alcohol, to have... Yeah, it's pretty good. pretty good setup. Yeah, thanks. Cool. And there's a lot of a lot of events and different uh, regular nights devoted to certain things, but then there are some special events. So one of those that, of course, we're here today to talk about is Barks for Sharks. Tell me about that. Well, essentially, um, three years ago, we started out with Oceana, um, and obviously I had a great event with them, was able to raise, raise some awareness and some money. And with the last couple of years of COVID, they've not been able to do any any really outside you know, activities whatsoever. So they're still sort of in lockdown, but it, we are trying to raise some awareness for uh, Fin Ban now, uh, being that so many sharks are still being taken from the Florida waters, even though they're not finned here, they are shipped overseas. And then that's when it happens over there. They take the fins and make the soup and waste the rest of the shark. Yeah, so, no, it's really horrible. And what a lot of people don't know is that... Uh, the sharks, they just cut the fins off, and then they throw the shark, who, of course, at that point doesn't have his fins, can't swim, can't do anything, right back into the water while they're still alive in most cases. So it's yeah. super it's, harsh, super cruel. Super, absolutely. Yeah. So we're trying to do our part again just to raise some awareness, and, and you know, it's, there's legislation that's out there, but it's not complete, and it doesn't it doesn't encompass all the issues that we need to deal with, so. So to find out more about that or the campaign to end shark finning, people can go to Oceana.org, if I'm not mistaken. Yes, absolutely. absolutely. And then just in our remaining uh, moment or so here, uh, Fred, tell me a little bit about what else is happening. Barks for Sharks sound like a pretty fun night lined up. Well, it really should be. We're going to be having a costume contest where dogs will be dressing up as sharks <laughs> or any sort of sea creature, if you will. Yeah. Uh, we'll have some shark, shark-themed drinks um, with the proceeds going also to Oceana. 
And we have, we'll have some fun stuff like jello shots and the like, and just trying to raise the awareness. Like we said. Yeah, and it sounds like there's also going to be live music, and I think just outside the uh, dog bar itself, there'll be like a food truck. So yes, we have a food truck every night, so it, it should be a fun evening. Yeah, we'll that's have great. A, a DJ keeping things going, and uh, we actually call it Bark After Dark, our Friday DJ setup. But we'll be making it Barks for Sharks this week. That sounds great. So where could people find out more? Uh, why don't you give us the, the website and or any social media page? And then we'll... well, um, our social media page is Doug Bar St. Pete uh, on, on Facebook. Same thing as the website, www.dogbarsaintpete, And you can find out about all the events and all the rescue events and fundraisers that we do. Typically, there's one almost every weekend. That's great. Well, we're all, we're all out of time. Thanks so much. Good luck, Fred. Thank it's you. WMNF Tampa.